The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. That we, your people, are beloved by you, the God of the universe. And that it will never end, it will never fail, it cannot be expanded because it is always, it is already maximized. You love us with an incredible, wide, long, high, deep love. And we can't perform our way into more of your love. We can't perform our way out of your love. We are beloved by you perfectly, fully. Bless your name. It should not be, but it is. And I pray, Lord, that as you put this on our mind now through the various aspects of worship up to this point this morning and in hearing of Zephaniah and hearing of these songs and as we then turn to your word, as we put these things on our mind, that you would then bring out of it a very natural and very appropriate and very fitting response, surrender. What have we to fear surrendering to a God like you who loves us like that? pray that you would generate in us that natural response so that while we see the command for it, it would be an easy command because it is so right and it resonates with what we want to be and do. You do have that command for us this morning. A call. And I pray that it would sit on us and it would call us to an appropriate, fitting, faithful response to you. And Lord, keep on our mind the context of it from where it comes. From a God, from a God like you. So make that apparent to us. Spirit of God, I pray that you would run through the room and have your way in us. Surely there are some here who don't know you. Call them. And surely most of us do. Call us too. Call us to trust. Call us to dependence. Call us to surrender. To a life lived dying. Not physically, but a life lived dying spiritually to ourselves and living to you and to others. Lord, do that work here in our church, I pray. And make us a people pleasing to you. So give order to my words. Give strength to our listening that we would have power to hear and to see what's in the Scripture. And Spirit of God, use it to change us and make us a people who are honoring to God the Father, who know fellowship with Him, who live strengthened and enlivened by Him. Do that in us, I pray, Spirit, for the glory of Jesus and for the good of this, your people. I pray it. Amen. This morning, as we come to the last few, last few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we come to the conclusion of what is the first major section of this book. 
Paul has been, since chapter 1, verse 10, has been addressing the subject, as we've seen repeatedly, the subject of division in the church, division of groups between separated from themselves, and then kind of the church as a whole separated from Paul and his apostolic authority. He brought it up in chapter 1 and then immediately began to lay out the gospel and to attack human pride, because that's the problem behind the problem. Wherever you find a discord or division, what you actually have found is is folks who have set aside the gospel and have moved on to embrace what seems right to them in their own eyes. And that creates conflict because it's not always what seems right in your eyes. And so we clash. So he's been addressing that now for quite a while. And now at the end of chapter 4, he draws this to a close. Beginning next week in chapter 5, we'll see that he moves on to address some other issues, some other topics that have come up in this letter that he's received. He's been contacted by the church in Corinth and they've raised a bunch of issues. This is just the first one. So it moves on next week. But, but here now, at this conclusion of the first major, major section, he issues a final summary call to live a life that is consistent with the gospel. A life like his, in fact. A life of dying to self. Which means, you'll recall, a life of setting aside. So dying to something means that it's set aside and it no longer becomes the the deciding factor, the dominant issue. So setting aside me, my desires, my preferences, my hopes, my goals, my way of doing things. A life of dying to self and, and living to Christ, living for Christ and for Christ's agenda and Christ's goals. So we've been talking about for a while in 8 to 13, flesh that out a bit, where in strong language Paul chastises the church. Calls them to live a life not like they've been living, but like his own, which he kind of fleshes out a little bit in those verses. Not, not a life exactly like his own, not in every detail. He doesn't expect that everybody's going to become a church planter. They can't all be apostles. They're not called to be it. He realizes that. They're not all men. They're not all single. They're not, it's not alike in every single detail, but, but of, the, of the like perspective of the setting aside of self and embracing of the cross as not just a theology that is something I hold in my head, but as, a, as something that marks my life, a cross-centered Dying-to-self perspective. That's what he's after. That's what we're going to look at. Uh, the call to live a life that matches that. I've said more about this in previous weeks. If you want to hear some more about it, you can look online. But this week we're going to be focusing on verses 14 to 21. I'm going to start reading, though, in, in verse 8 to get the whole context. This is sort of one great big section here. I'm going to begin reading now in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 8 through the end of the chapter. Paul says, sarcastically, tongue-in-cheek here to get after them, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. 
We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? The central issue we're going to deal with this morning, as I said, is a command issued to us. But before we get to the content of that command, we should should notice and observe some of the context from whence the command comes. Paul frames this whole thing in in, in a a metaphor, if you will, of a father-child. 14 and 15, he, he speaks to them as a father speaking to children. As we already saw, I read there, he's got some pointed words in 8 to 13. This is some hard stuff. Then he writes, though, in 14, I'm not writing to to shame you. That's not my goal, to leave you ashamed. To kind of rub your nose in it and then leave you there. Ha! Though there's something shameful, he's not trying to leave him there. He says, rather, I'm writing to admonish you. That is, to warn. To admonish is to warn someone away from something that is improper or dangerous, inappropriate, wrong like a father would do to beloved children. Parents do this with children that they love. They sometimes even raise their voice. Sometimes even get after the child. No! You see the kid about to run out in the road, you don't say, it would be unwise perhaps of you to journey into the thoroughfare. No! Which sometimes makes the child cry, doesn't it? Have you ever done that as a parent? You, you, you yell, you raise your voice, and the child cries because there's some, they don't know what's going on. And they feel like, why did you just get mad at me? No, I'm not mad at you. I'm trying to grab you. There's a danger here. So from that perspective, he's admonishing. I see a danger. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. He's using the concept here of an an ancient household, particularly well-off households, would would often entrust children to a guide. Literally, it's a child tender. A steward who was given to children, especially sons, and said, here, kind of 
take care of this kid, make sure he gets to school and back, doesn't get into a whole lot of trouble. A child tender. Oftentimes a person was a slave. Someone who had a, a little bit of compassion, a little bit of skill with kids. He's, he's a guide. And, and there is, in that kind of a relationship, there is some authority over the child. There is some care for the child that probably develops, but, but not a whole lot, not like a parent. Paul says to them, you have plenty of people who will be of a help to you and are sort of interested in you, but at the end of the day, they collect a paycheck and they go home. They're not like me. I birthed you. Literally, I became your father. I birthed you in the Gospel. Something happened between us by the grace of God. I didn't do it. I'm nothing. But I came to you. I was sent here by God. And off of my lips, I preached the Gospel to you. And by the grace of God, it produced life in you. And you came alive under my care. I have birthed you in the Gospel, which makes me your father. And like in an ancient household, that puts me in a position of responsibility as well as love. I love you. You are my beloved children. I am concerned about you. I want to admonish you for that. And frankly, it's my job. I'm your father. They're not. They're permitted to just say, well, maybe I'm going home. It's my job as your father. My responsibility entrusted me. Think of... Think of it like this in the church. You can go into a Christian bookstore and you can find all kinds of books. And when you happen upon a good book, there would be good advice in that book from someone who doesn't know your name, has never met you, and is not responsible for you. A guide. But a Christian parent or, or a minister or a Bible study leader has some responsibility and some knowledge and some concern. There's a difference there. That's what Paul's saying. I'm different than all of them. I have a love for you and I have a responsibility. And from that then I admonish you in the name of the Lord. That's the context. He is not angry at them. But he's concerned. And so he admonishes. That's the context. He speaks this also to us, though he is our father differently. All of the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. He's birthed us differently, not personally come to our town, but this message, his words have come through someone to us and have brought life to us if you're a Christian. And God through him still speaks to us today. This, this is his admonishment to every church. So what does he have to say? I'm going to make two observations then about the content of the passage. That's kind of the context. He sets it up so that you think along these lines of a concerned, responsible, loving father speaking to children. I'm going to make two observations. One about the content of the command and one about the consequence for rejecting the command. Content first. Here's my first observation. We are commanded to live lives consistent with the gospel. We're commanded to live lives 
consistent with the Gospel. Verse 16, I urge you then, as your Father, I urge you then, be imitators of Me. And just to be clear, though urge might sound like advice, the grammar is actually a command. Be imitators. And it's a command not just in a one-time sense, it's a command in an ongoing sense. He's saying, continually be this. Christian, church, in an ongoing manner, be an imitator of me. An imitator of me. Not just, church, agree with what I teach. Agree with my doctrine. There's a difference here. He does not command them just to agree with his doctrine. Although, of course, that's important. And, of course, it's implied. But that's not really the problem in Corinth. And it's not really the problem in a lot of churches. It's not really the fundamental problem even in our church. Basically, now who knows what every person in the pew there was like or every person in the pew here is like, but basically the church in Corinth agreed with most of what Paul's talking about. As he writes all this, there would have been much, yeah, we're on the same page. Yeah, we got that. They, they were not launched off into false teaching about something. Some other churches were. Not, not them so much. The issue was that the gospel that they agreed with Paul on had been left over here and they'd moved on from it and it had not properly impacted their life, which is why he says, not just agree with my teaching, my life. Verse 17, Timothy will come and remind you of my ways in Christ. How I live. How I live as a Christian, not as a worldly person. And right there you can see why I've expressed this command not as we're called to imitate Paul. I've I've put it as we are called to live lives consistent with the gospel because that's really the point. Paul is not, I think rather obviously, is not fundamentally concerned that we look like him. He wants us to look like him because he looks like what we're supposed to look like. We are supposed to follow him as he follows Christ. To live a life that's consistent with this doctrine that we profess. Consistent with the gospel. His point, I have a message and I have a life. They are together. You have a message and you have a life and they are not. That's the problem. Join them. What's his life look like? Well, we've seen this already. 8 through 13 describes some of that. Paul's gospel consistent life is a life lived like one led out to die. One of constantly setting aside what would be comfortable and, and desirable and, and maybe even worldly sense beneficial to him, setting that aside constantly so as to walk consistent with the gospel, so much so that everybody looks at him and regards him as a fool, a joke, as they ridicule him and reject him, scorn him, treat him as the scum of the earth, the stuff that people scrape off their shoes. That's what his life is like. And it is obvious from this passage, again, the end of verse 17, this is what he teaches everywhere in every church. He expects it to be 
the normal life for the, for the Christian. Now, again, not in every single detail. He's not saying that we're all supposed to be church planters in the Roman Empire. That we're all supposed to be tent makers. That manual labor is the only permissible type of work. No, he doesn't mean that. It's the attitude behind all of that that is, that is the call, the challenge to us. A life lived consistent with the cross, which says, I die to myself like Jesus, like Paul, like me. I die to myself and live for Him. That's the only life consistent. That's the only life we're called to here now. Why, though? Remember we talked about this before. It's not that the Corinthians had completely missed everything. The Gospel does, at the heart of the Gospel, is a tremendous basket of promises. A life of tremendous rest. Of tremendous bounty, of tremendous authority and power. We, he, he pokes at them, already you, you reign as kings. Well, are we not promised to reign as kings? Yes. But not already, that's the point. Already you are rich. Are we not promised a life of tremendous riches in Christ? Yes, but not already. So they, they got a piece of it. The problem was the already. Right now, we are not to embrace those things, but to let them all go. Why? Fundamentally, it's because of the times and the world in which we live. This is sometimes hard for privileged Americans to conceptualize, but we follow a king and live in a world that are at odds with one another. I know that sounds simple, but I honestly, I I think that most of us don't get that. We can interact, we can walk out of these doors and interact with all kinds of people who are very kind and very polite to us and, and relatively cordial and, and, and seem to respect our right to worship in here in this room as we, as we please. And so it doesn't seem like there's really a war going on. There is. There is a war going on right now between the king that we follow and the ruler that the rest of the world follows. A war. Not a mild disagreement. The difference of opinion. A war. The Bible talks about it all the time. War. And we as His followers are at war. Not with flesh and blood. But we are at war. And there is something incredibly inappropriate as one writer has put it, following after a king who is stripped to the waist to do battle with a big gulp in my hand. Wow, this is going to be really interesting. Where's my recliner so that I can watch this? No. That's wrong. 
have anything against big gulfs. But you get it? We, especially in the American world, we in the West, we live with our feet up on the, on the Barca lounger with a big gulp in front of our large TVs watching, thinking, man, it must be tough being a Christian over there. Oh. It is hard to be a Christian in other countries. I think it might be because we're not actually engaged in the battle because the war is raging here too. I think it might be that the battle's not very difficult here because frankly we've called a truce. And the enemy is plenty fine agreeing to that on the surface. On the surface. But he is always a lion prowling. Maybe you just don't realize that you're the prey. There is a war going on. A war that is being raged for your soul, for the souls of all the people around you, for the glory of God in His creation that is rightfully due to Him. There's a war. Brothers and sisters, there's a war. And there's only one appropriate life. And it's not the claiming of all of the rights and privileges and the comforts that I want to be mine that are promised after the victory has been won. It's not claiming those things now. It's setting them aside for the sake of fighting. Or if you want to change the metaphor, running. I I fear that we have put up the mission accomplished banner at the very beginning of the battle and not realized what we've done. There must be a a new reckoning in our minds that this thing is not over. Yes, the decisive blow has been struck at the cross and Jesus said significantly, it is finished. But that also sort of means now it has begun. Because He is about spreading that kingdom reign to every corner of the earth. It had just started at the cross in that sense. And we live in it right now. And there's only one appropriate life that matches it. Not that I go out and become homeless and, and be poorly dressed, literally, verse 11, but that I do not cling to the right to be well dressed and smartly homed. Sharply homed. The only life we are called to is a life of dying to self that is not simply masochistic, but it is purposeful. It serves an end. To engage well in the mission that He's about. To worship Him. And to make worshipers in every corner of the earth. And that can't happen while we're trying to have heaven on earth now. There is a glorious heaven coming. It's just not now. Brothers and sisters, it's not now. Now, He has amazingly, marvelously, wonderfully, powerfully given us His Spirit that we can experience that in the heart now. But the point is, in the heart now, in the midst of the battle out here. Not instead of, in the midst of. 
That's the appropriate life. That's a life consistent with the gospel in the time in which we live now. We must live that, not simply affirm that we must live that. There's a difference. We must live that. That's what we are called to. To be an imitator of Paul. It's what he teaches everywhere in every church, including in this one. May we hear that. And then assuming that you actually want to do it, want to obey that command, be be conformed to that image, how? Well, he's been showing us all along. This is the conclusion. All along he's been showing how this happens by preaching the gospel to them. There's two things I need to say about how. The, the one is what's been going all along here. He, he pulls out the gospel and the hopes, the, the expectation that when God the Spirit takes this gospel, this good news about what God has done for you, about what God has done for you in sending Christ to change your eternity and to, to change your status before Him from an object of His wrath to an object of His love, that you stand in grace before Him forever and ever and ever and ever. That as He pours that message out on you and it grips you, it will draw you to surrender. What do you want, King? What do you want, lovely, beautiful King? I'm yours. So that it won't be obligation as much as it'll be natural. That's how we interact with people with whom we are in love. You know how it is if if you're married or if you've ever dated somebody or wanted to date somebody, when you've got that person, oh man, you're you're just geeked about them. Whatever you get the slight impression they might like, you do. Don't you? You're not even sure if they like it, but you do it anyway, just by chance that they might. He he holds out the gospel and and paints it in in vivid color in front of us. He wants that to, to happen in you. That the gospel would capture you. That the God of the gospel would capture you. So that's the first thing. Is How do I do this? Drink. Eat the gospel. But the second thing here, an additional thing he adds in, in verse 17, verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy. Timothy's probably en route at the time. At the end of the letter, he talks about urging them to receive Timothy well. Timothy's probably on the way. See the connection? Imitate me. That's why I sent you Timothy. The first thing that Paul does throughout this whole letter is he paints the gospel for them, but he does not believe that in and of itself is sufficient. Otherwise, he wouldn't bother to send Timothy, would he? I've written this letter, which incidentally is the Bible. I give them the Bible. That's sufficient. Paul doesn't think that. which should say something extremely loudly to us, the Word in and of itself, apart from people, is not sufficient in the Apostle Paul's eyes. I command you 
to live a life of this sort that I've just described in writing. And to help with that, I'm going to send you a person. A person who is just like you, but a little different. Timothy is my beloved child in the Lord, just like you are, but Timothy is my beloved faithful child in the Lord. He's a step ahead. As as he interacts with them, beginning of chapter 3, does he not chastise them for living unfaithful? That's the whole point. That's why he's interacting with them. You're my children in the Lord, but you've got a problem here. I'm going to send you somebody who's also my child in the Lord who is a step ahead of you and has less of a problem with this. Not that he doesn't have any problem at all. He's a person. He's a human being. But he's more faithful to what we're talking about than you are. And when he comes up, he comes, he's not just going to read this letter. You already have the letter. There's going to be something additional about how he lives in your midst that will help conform you to what this life is supposed to be. He's going to live among you and be a minister that puts flesh on the bones of doctrine and brings the head into contact with the hands. Different people use different terms for this kind of ministry. Interpersonal ministry, life-on-life ministry, Discipleship works there too. Paul does not believe it is sufficient that you and your Bible all by yourself sit down. But you have to do that too. can't skip that. But more than that, it needs to be a person. Both elements of the Gospel message modeled by and reminded by the lives of people who are just a little step ahead. That's what ministers need to be. That's what elders need to be. You read through an elder qualification list in Timothy or Titus, that stuff there, apart from the the ability to teach, all that stuff is supposed to be characteristic of Christians. And the point of making those elder qualifications is that these guys are supposed to be a step ahead. So they can model this. So they can help remind us, oh yeah, that's what I'm supposed to be. That's what it looks like. I see it. Okay. Think of how this might work. You have two mothers, both with young kids, getting together on some morning. And, And I hope that mothers with young kids do get together. You know, the, the, uh, the play date. Is not should not be just about your kids. You should think of the play date as about you. Maybe as I'm going to describe here a little bit. And if you don't have young kids, I hope you get together with mothers who have young kids. For the same reasons. It's not just about the kids. It's about the adults. But the two mothers, they get together and the kids are playing. And as the morning wears on, spit up and diapers, missnaps, crankiness, disobedience and fighting happens. It's kids. Of course that happens. And one mother deals with it more or less in stride. Not necessarily delighted with all that, but cleaning up and correcting and spanking and refereeing as needed in control of herself. And the other mother, because of the social setting, is smiling. But she knows that inside she is not in control of herself. 
She's a mix of angry and hopeless. Anybody ever been there? Of course. Maybe if you're not a mother with kids at a play date. You've been there where you're watching somebody dealing with something that's doing that inside of you and they just seem not perfect but better than you. Maybe a step ahead. And so the mother who's struggling takes a risk. How how do you do that? Because I'm about... I'm about to throw in the towel or hit somebody, one of the two. How do you do that? And probably whatever comes out of the first mother's mouth is not going to be new information. There's going to be a, a great big dose of reminder in there. I mean, there might be something new, but, but probably not a lot of new But the point is that as those two interact then over this real-life situation, one a half step ahead of the other, life ministers to life in life. The kind of life that, that is a laid down, I envision something, I want something else for myself, and I'm not getting it, which is why I'm frustrated, and I can't make them change, which is why I'm frustrated, and this isn't going to change, which is why I feel hopeless. To lay all that aside, to lay it down, is what this other woman's modeling. To set your hope in in, in Christ and then to serve these little ones in love. Who's never heard that before? But there's going to be a reminder of it and an encouragement of it. And as they talk and they pray together, there will be growth in that. Just a little bit. But if they do it every Tuesday, it might happen with some regularity. And what do you know? Discipleship. And somebody's life becomes a little more conformed to a life that matches the gospel. That's just two moms being slightly intentional about their children's play date. That could happen in a bunch of settings. And I envision this in the church happening in kind of two different ways. One, a random way like that. And one in maybe a more structured way through men's ministry or women's ministry or the gospel communities. If, if you want some more help pursuing that, talk to myself, talk to Jed about that, talk to the, the person who leads your gospel community. And if you're not in one, be in one. You have one, be involved in the community of people there around you. Talk to somebody, Jed or myself, about that. But the point is that Paul commands them to live lives, commands us to live lives that match the gospel And he sees that happening in two ways as he preaches the gospel and then runs it through an actual human being's life in their midst. Timothy. Or Timothy's. Us. It must mark us as individuals and as a church. We are commanded to live lives that are consistent, that are faithful with the gospel. And the second observation then is on the lines of a warning about the consequence for resisting the command to live consistent with the gospel. And there are consequences. So put it in a sentence. There are consequences for resisting the command to live consistent with the gospel. In verse 18 and following, Paul's tone changes from one of encouragement from one of a, of a father saying, Oh, I want you to get this. 
to maybe his voice as a father deepens a little bit and gets a little more serious because he's moving on to a bit of a threat. He acknowledges the reality in 18 and in 19 that the church has a prominent problem with arrogance. He uses the word twice. In 18 and in 19, it's the same word that he used up in verse 6. We saw last week translated in the ESV as puffed up. Same word, arrogant. Talk about boasting up in verse 7. It's been all throughout boasting and, and pride has been just a prominent issue. Maybe not every single person. He says some of you are arrogant, but those were influential people and they have led the whole church into a way of pursuing life. And Paul's aware of that and he's pretty serious about it. Some are arrogant and if the Lord wills, I will come. I have written about how you must walk. I've sent Timothy to model it. Like your father, I am concerned and I am admonishing this. There is a danger here. I've warned you about walking this path. And if you resist that, we are not going to find ourselves in a situation where I say, well, okay, that's what you want, that's fine. We're not in that situation, says Paul, the apostle. End of 21, I'm going to come either with a rod to spank or with loving gentleness. Which will it be? You hear in that the force. Change will happen. You choose. There are consequences that the church is not a democracy. It isn't. We don't vote. Majority does not rule. We Westerners have a real problem with that. It seems odd to us. It's the way it is. Paul says... I'm going to come with all of the authority of God placed in me and change will happen. And he understand, he's not speaking about political change, like I've got the votes to push one party out or not. He's speaking much more seriously, much more soberly than that. He means to say, I might come all by my lonesome and change will happen because he's going to come with the power of God. which should cause us to sit up. He's, going to, he's talking about, he's using verse 21, he's transitioning into, if you know chapter 5, he's going to be moving over to talk about church discipline. And the, and the situation going on there that he addresses, we'll look at in the future, so I'm not going to go into detail about that, but he's, he's moving towards a particular case and the final stages of church discipline. But I'm not going to go there because we'll go there later. But generally speaking, there's, a, there's another consequence that I want to point out to us from, from these verses. How he interacts with the word, with people of arrogance. And just to be clear, remember last week, that word arrogance sometimes carries a lot of bravado in it. We think, oh, arrogant people are kind of chest-thumping. I'm not arrogant. I'm very quiet and very meek. Maybe. Maybe. 
arrogance, pride is fundamentally a heart attitude that can be expressed in silence. It doesn't have to be the person standing up saying, I'm king of the world, I'm king of the world, I'm king of the world. It can be somebody who doesn't say anything, just thinks that. Or at least, I'm king of me. That's also a problem. You're not king of you. You're not king of you. You're not king of anything. I'm not king of anything. God is the one and only king. And so any attitude that says, I'm going to run my own life or choose my own, my own path and my own agenda is an arrogant attitude which can be expressed very meekly in adults, in ten-year-old children. So we need, to, we need to hear arrogance and not think, oh, he's talking about somebody else because I'm very mild-mannered. It's a heart attitude that he's getting after. And it's the heart attitude that would say, I see what you have said about how this life I'm supposed to live looks, what it looks like in... Ah, no thanks. doesn't suit me. It's an arrogant attitude when interacting with a command from God. So he speaks to arrogant people, perhaps like us. And what I want to point out here is that in 19 and 20, there's one serious consequence there that's, that we need to think about a little bit to see it, but I think it will pop out at you. The apostle assumes that when he comes, the arrogant will find themselves opposed to the power of the kingdom of God. Verse 19, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Remember that in Corinth, a major issue was talk. Wise and persuasive speech, eloquence. All kinds of philosophers, all kinds of talkers with all kinds of an agenda. Perspectives, ideas, thoughts. And the church had embraced all that and had plenty of people who had ideas and thoughts and perspectives. He said, I know, hey, I know that you can talk really well. We shall see. Not because Paul's interested in finding out. He knows. He's still got a little bit of the tongue-in-cheek here. He's not saying, I don't know if God's on my side or on your side. We shall see. He means other. We'll see where the power lies when I come. Verse 20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Where the kingdom of God is, that is, where the reign of R-E-I-G-N, where the reign of God is, where He is enthroned as King, the power of God is. And where He isn't, there is only religious talk. So we'll see. You get what Paul's implying here? And this is the consequence that I'm talking about this morning. Proud people don't know the power of God at work in their lives. But in fact, are opposed by it. So what Paul's going to discover when he comes. Arrogant people opposed to the power of God. Which makes perfect sense given that the Bible repeatedly says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
it says that at least three times. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He does not work powerfully on behalf of those who are committed to self-advancement, self-exalting autonomy. He does not loan His power to we who would enthrone ourselves. He works on behalf of those who wait for Him, humbly, hoping, submitted, lowly, meek. Which arrogant, proud, autonomous people do not do. Maybe for a moment they might, but when it doesn't work, they go back to what they trust, their own capabilities and their own insights. Which does not work because the kingdom of God is about power. What that means. For the kingdom of God to be present, there is power. And for the kingdom of God to grow, there needs to be power. The kingdom is all about power. Because what is in opposition to the kingdom is power. Negative. But we we interact with, we we talk to, we, we struggle with a power who is greater than anything we have. Our own flesh, our own fallenness, the enemy of our souls, Satan. The Bible warns us that he is strong and wise, or at least smart. There is power over there. And for the kingdom of God to triumph over that, there needs to be power, supernatural power. The power of God is needed to change hearts, to produce trust in what can't be seen when all that can be seen is terrible. The power of God is needed to produce rejoicing in the midst of sorrow. The power of God is needed to open blind eyes to see and understand and believe the gospel. To make dead men see is, requires power. It can't happen otherwise. Church, it could well be As, as I think back, and I've only been here five and a half years or so, so I don't know all the history of our church. I know some of it, but I don't know it intimately. But as I think back at our past and the rap that we have, the reputation that we have, I wonder if we are at a point, we're coming up to this a fork in the road, where God would say something like this to us. I send you my word, instructing you about what the gospel is, and I paint it in front of you. And I call you to trust it and live after it and embrace me and follow me and surrender to me and submit to me. And I put in your midst people who will model that for you and and display some of my glory and some of my gracious love in all of their fallenness, but they're there. Timothy's are among you. And I admonish you, you must take this path. And I warn you that if you retain your arrogance, which might be chest beating and might just be a, uh, you know, I'm 
no thanks, got better stuff to do. And I warn you, maybe, says the Lord, if you retain your arrogance, my grieved spirit will step aside and not merely leave you to your own devices, but oppose the proud. I give grace to the humble. But I will not share my glory with another. I will not loan to two-bit would-be kings my omnipotent strength. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time He may lift you up. As I have ruminated on this a little bit, I have wondered, I don't know if God says something like that now to our church. I know that He says that, generally speaking, always. And I tremble at that. Somebody said to me a long time ago, talking about me personally, a warning to me, an admonishment to me, be very careful that you not reach out to grab the glory of God or He will write Ichabod over your ministry. The glory has departed and you'll be done. I've thought about that constantly for years. And I wonder what he would say or how he would interact with the church. Be very careful that you not hear and walk away into your own plans and agendas. Because I only give grace to the humble. My power resides, paradoxically, in the weak. And those who know it, and those who are submitted to me, and follow after me with lives crucified, I oppose the proud. I want to be a Christian like that, I want to be a minister like that, and I want us to be a church like that, that humbly says, Your command, O loving and gracious and glorious Father, is my wish. Help me. I, I, I'm a sinner. But I want to. Help me. Would you be that? Would we be that? We are in the midst of a war which requires a certain type of life. Which is, in some aspects, highly contrary to typical American Western life. Will you die to yourself and consistently live after the gospel or not? Which will it be? Let me pray. Father, I'm preaching way over my head here and I need Your grace to help me walk after this too. And each of your people here in this room need your grace 
to be alerted to this and to be to be moved by it and to care about it and then to embrace it humbly in all of our brokenness and all of our failing to embrace it. And so would you please graciously extend to us help Remind each one here, Father, I pray, remind us where this originates. In the heart of a a tremendously loving God who admonishes only in love. Remind us where this comes from. Sober us to it and graciously move us, I pray. That Christ would be honored in our lives. That, that other things, that inferior affections and the things that we love that rise up and take inordinate pride of place would, would fall away in my life and in others' lives. That You would be supreme over all things. That we would find joy in You. For our own sanctification, do that. For our own joy, for Your honor, do that. And for the sake of the nation's Free us from bondage to stuff here. We might give and go and think and pray. Lord, help us. Change our church, please. If You would be so honored to use us, we would be honored by that. If, if we would in some way bring honor to You, if You would be honored by something that we could do or something that we could be. Take us and do that in us, please. We would be honored to be a part of it. Glorify Christ in our midst, I pray. In His name, Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.